Welcome to season four of Knowledge Cast by Ideals. We're excited about this season's guest, and you can learn more about our guests in this new season and previous seasons at jackwwilliams.com slash podcast. Did you know that Jack is an author too? You can learn more from Jack through his book called The Question, a guide to answering life's most important question as he shares his personal journey that began in 1993 to determine the values, principles, and beliefs that would guide all aspects of his life. You can learn more about The Question on Jack's website too at jackwwilliams.com. Now let's listen to an all new episode of Knowledge Cast by Ideals. Well, welcome to our fourth season of Knowledge Cast. If you're a regular listener, we're certainly glad to have you back with us again. And if you're a first-time listener, welcome, and we hope that you'll enjoy today's podcast and will join us again next week. Well, it's a real privilege today to have Rick Hill with us. Rick is a well-known actor, director, author, and keynote speaker. I coached Rick at uh, Georgia Tech before Rick made his way to Hollywood where we start in the original uh, today's FBI Network TV show. As a result of that show, Rick was involved in over 75 Network TV episodes and later became a director as well. He appeared in two movies, Liar, Liar and Eye of the Widow. And he also uh, gained national acclaim for his New York Times bestseller book on Pete Rose, My Prison Without Bars. He's later authored two additional books. Rick now spends his time writing and speaking nationally as a keynote speaker. Well, Rick, it's a real privilege to reconnect with you and have you with us. Jack, it's a pleasure to see you again, sir. Well, listen, after your after the superior coaching that you received at Tech, you probably want to get as far away from me as you could. So you made it all the way out to the left coast in Hollywood. What prompted you to pursue uh, acting as a career? Well, Jack, it was kind of accidental, as you know, going back to our athletic career, uh, you know, as an athlete, you never want to quit playing your sport. You just you just have that desire to keep on playing, even if injuries and talent or circumstances dictate otherwise. Um, I had had knee surgery, a shoulder dislocation, torn hamstring at Georgia Tech. But Jerry Glanville, who you remember from uh, your coaching staff, was with the Detroit Lions at the time. He brought me into camp. I could not pass a physical there, but I got a contract with Winnipeg in the Canadian Football League. Got hurt again is is what was the story of my football career. Uh, But Chris Schinkel, who you may remember from the wide world of sports, was in Winnipeg. They were filming uh, a TV commercial for one of the Canadian beers, I think. And uh, since I was on the injured list, our GM, Earl Lansford, said, uh, Rick, why don't you go over there and audition? They're looking for an athlete to be in this commercial. And uh, that's what launched me. And uh, J. Walter Thompson, the ad agency, brought me to New York and and I started out doing uh, TV commercials. So it was kind of uh, fortuitous, uh, but it happened uh, almost by accident. Where injuries paid off there. Well, it did. I realized after my first year, I think I did seven national TV commercials and I looked at my paychecks and I looked at what I was making in football and nobody was trying to rip my head off. So I thought <laughs> I made a pretty good trade there. You mentioned Jerry Glanville. We had Jerry on one of our earlier episodes and uh, listened to his numerous stories. We well, you know. Oh. When you hear actors, uh, once they've made it, they, they always have a story about things they had to do to survive before getting their break. 
Did you have to go through any of that or were was that first uh, audition what launched you and, you and it was fairly smooth after that? Well, I was fortunate in the sense that a lot of actors get jobs as a bartender or waitress or whatever to to work nights to keep their daytimes free for auditions. Because of the television commercials, I was rather blessed there that I had an income. And and while in New York, I sat in on uh, Lee Strasberg's class, the Actors Studio, and and he had people like Meryl Streep and Al Pacino. So that was a pretty, you know, that's like going into NFL and having Tom Brady as your quarterback. It wakes you up in a hurry as to what the craft and the profession is all about. So when I moved to Los Angeles, um, Lee Strasberg also had a um, West Coast school, but I got involved with the uh, Beverly Hills Playhouse, which at the time was sort of the launching pad for network television. It was moderated by Milton Casellas, who had just directed a Broadway play with Elizabeth Taylor. And I, I don't mean to name drop with this. Forgive me. I just give you an idea of the perspective. Uh, in our class, we had an 18-year-old Michelle Pfeiffer right out of high school in Orange County. We had Tom Selleck before the hit series Magnum P.I., Ted Danson before Cheers, Tony Danza before Who's the Boss. The list goes on and on and on. There was another guy who came to that class a few years later, but he only stayed a week because he booked his first film, uh, Tom Cruise. So when you're when you're blessed to be in that kind of company, you're you're inspired to try to um, bring out the best that you have to offer. It's a pretty pretty impressive group of people. So I was blessed in that regard, and it was from that class uh, where I was cast in uh, the ABC series Today's FBI. You know, in football, we'd say that's a pretty strong huddle. <laughs> and they're, they're probably telling people they were in a class with Rick Hill. Well, uh, I don't I don't know about that, but they, they were good people and it was inspiring. Well, let's get to the, the new FBI story. You, that was your first big break there. And, you know, today we've got FBI series coming out the you know, the years. But uh, I believe yours might have been the very first one. So how did that opportunity come about? Well, it, it came about through the Beverly Hills Playhouse. Um, Milton Katselis, who was the, the director, um, once he found an actor that had a pretty good niche with with the character, um, he would put on a showcase and, and network executives and casting directors would come in and see your work. And then they would get a good idea about where you might fit in with the shows. We were actually a remake of the old Ephraim Zemblis series, which goes oh, yeah. back before our time. Yep. That was uh, in the 60s, uh, and I think it blended into the 70s. We were the 80s, and all of our all of our episodes came from actual FBI case files, so they were real stories. And we used to get into arguments because we had the Justice Department, the Bureau men were with us every week, and they kept saying, well, no, you can't do it this way. We wouldn't do it that way. And our argument was we're a television series. We have to have conflict and drama and jeopardy. We've got to put our lives at stake here so that we can <laughs> keep the audience coming. Said, oh, no, no. We would just surround the building and shoot tear gas in there. So uh, it's kind of an interesting thing. Now, you know, as you see with great shows like Peaky Blinders or Breaking Bad, television and cable has just revolutionized 
storytelling. Uh, when we did the FBI, we there were only three channels in the 80s. And Fox was just coming on. There were no cable. So right. censorship and standards and practices had a lot to, to, to say uh, about how we did the shows. But, uh, boy, television has come a long way since those days. Well, you in a lot of other uh, TV shows and movies besides that one. Any one particular one stick out is, is your favorite or one you enjoyed the most? Well, you know, that's, that's kind of like going back with a football career and say which game or which bowl game or which, you know, there's so many. And really, Jack, as you know, it always comes down to the people. You know, you can talk about awards or this or that, but it's always the people you work with. And those are the memories that last a lifetime. Uh, had a wonderful time with Jim Carrey on Liar Liar. He was such an amazing talent, so kinetic, so energetic. And we would do, not we, but Jim would ask for a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh take because he would get creative ideas and want to do it a different way. Finally, Ron Howard, who was the producer, Tom Shadiak was the director, but Ron Howard came down to the set. They said, Jim, we, we can't use but one take. So all seven <laughs> of those are really terrific. They're all funny. But let's just save your energy for, you know, the script and leave it that way. Uh, had a great time on Cheers. I, I played uh, Tibor Svetkovic, the Czechoslovakian hockey player. Right. Uh, and, and Ted Danson and, and Shelley Long and Rhea Perlman, John Ratzenberger. Uh, they were so funny. And unlike film, when you do a sitcom, you do it in front of a live audience. So Monday through Thursday, we rehearse. And then Friday, they bring the audience in. And boy, the energy level is just through the roof. And one thing about comedy, when you have a, an audience out there, you know if it's funny or not. You know if it works. Pretty quick. And, uh, very satisfying. It's kind of like throwing those touchdown passes that you used to do. Oh, well, that's. Uh, did you have any episodes uh, live that you said, oops, uh, wish this was, uh, wish we were still in rehearsal? something go, go wrong well things always go wrong in film because it's just the human condition um but it, that's the beauty of film you've got take two take three right. take four you can reset the cameras and 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 do it again until you until you get it right andy griffith who you will remember uh i did an episode of matlock and uh in film you know you rarely do more than 20, 30 seconds worth of dialogue, and then you cut, you reset the cameras, and you continue. So on a Broadway play, you've got to remember your two hours worth of performance. You're doing it all nonstop. But film is cut up into little uh, bits and pieces. But Tony Mordenti, our director, he and Andy Griffith had a thing going on. He, Tony would tease Andy about getting a little older as if he couldn't remember his lines. But Andy Griffith memorized three pages of dialogue and he told tony i want you to run through the whole thing and really? he said no that's never been done they, what are you kidding and, and so they had a little side bet but andy griffith was so magnificent and he was such a a polished actor and he he would just go into these machinations of different characters and stories he did three minutes worth of dialogue without a flub without a mistake and at the end, we just all sat there on the stage, slack-jawed. Of course, Tony said, cut, 
print and we were done. <laughs> he lost that bet. Yes, yes, well, he did. Well, you later switched uh, to behind the camera as a director. What prompted uh, what prompted that move? Well, it came about also a little bit by accident. Um, I was doing a TV series. Actually, it was a film. We were uh, filming overseas and they had chosen the wrong director and he was not working out. He didn't have the people skills to work with the actors and he wasn't completely confident about, you know, which camera angles and which lenses to use. And so I had directed some second unit prior to that, meaning the action sequences, um, you know, having been an athlete, um, I was asked to come in and consult on some of the sports shows and sports movies. And so I just kind of fell into it, you know, with the Georgia tech education, uh, you do have a good sense about how things work. And uh, I had paid attention to cameras and editing and uh, had a real good rapport with actors on the set. So uh, I just kind of took over on that particular show. And then it just led to more and more work. What's the toughest part of being a director? Uh, getting the next job as a director. <laughs> that's a tough. That's, yeah, that's a pretty that's a pretty significant issue. You know, Jack, it's very similar in sports. You've got the athletes, the coaches, and the athletic director. And, and film and television is very similar. You have the actors, the directors, and the producers. So the hierarchy is really very similar. Um, once you learn, and you can learn cameras and lenses and editing, you can learn that in a matter of weeks if you pay attention. And then your communication skills and your rapport with your actors is just significant. Uh, that's right. why uh, wonderful actors like Ron Howard, uh, Mel Gibson, Kevin Costner become great directors because they understand story, character, great communication skills with the actors. Uh, Tom Shadiak did almost no directing with Jim Carrey on Liar Liar. Ron Howard left Tommy Lee Jones. And when you've got Russell Crowe and these great actors, uh, you know, you let them act and then you just point the camera in the right direction. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's not, also let's switch over to your writing. It's not easy to get recognized as a New York Times bestselling author and you accomplished that with your book on the life of uh, Pete Rose. How did that opportunity come up to do the, the book on Pete? Well, Pete and I lived in the same neighborhood here in California. Um, we used to go to a restaurant called Sicily's Italian Restaurant. It was owned by my friend Jamie Alba, um, who, who was an actor at one point. And Pete would go into the restaurant. I would go into the restaurant at different times. And Pete had lied uh, about betting on baseball for 13 years at that time. He just didn't want to admit that. And um, I had written a screenplay on the on the life of Jim Eisenreich, who was a wonderful baseball player who played for the Phillies and the Twins, who grew up with a strange neurological condition that doctors could not treat, could not diagnose. Uh, and, and Jim had to retire from baseball. They had a wonderful father. If you picture a Gene Hackman type character, that was Jim's father. Well, that was also who Pete Rose's father was. So Jamie told Pete about that script and let him read a few scenes from that screenplay about the father-son dynamic. And uh, and then Pete said, well, I, I want to meet Rick. 
And um, as it turned out, we had met before uh, at Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh. Uh, a lot of us in Hollywood, we had a team of softball uh, players called the Hollywood All-Stars. And it was Mark Harmon, Carl Weathers, uh, Tony Danza, uh, Sam Jones, a whole bunch of us who had played sports and were now actors. And we would play softball teams around the country um, in all the Major League Baseball fields. We'd go to Chicago to Wrigley Field and play a softball game against the Bears before a Cubs game. So we were in Three Rivers Stadium and the Pirates were playing the Reds. And Pete Rose was the player manager then. And Jim Leland, who was managing the Pirates, was my next-door neighbor growing up and my Little League baseball coach. Oh, wow. Um, Jim Jim introduced us, and then Pete had remembered that. But what drew Pete to, to my writing was writing something more about base hits and slides and baseball, but the humanity, the father-son relationship, the the passion for the craft, the work ethic, everything that generally goes missed um, in regular sports writing, but is the key to good books and good movies. Well, it certainly worked out well for both of you on that. Now, you know, you've written a couple books now on individuals. I just finished your book, uh, the Apostle about Dr. Uh, G.B. Espy, and knowing Dr. Espy personally uh, while I was at Tech, uh, I mentioned to you after reading it, I was just amazed at the the details that you had in your story. How as an author do you go about doing the research that you need to do uh, on an inv- individual before you you know write a book, and, and how much time did you have to spend doing that for the book on Pete Rose? Pete and I worked together every day. We would meet for breakfast or lunch and then sometimes dinner at the Sicily Italian restaurant. And I would record Pete and then I would take notes. And then after breakfast, I'd go back to my office and I'd write for two or three hours. Pete would go do what he needed to do. Then we'd come back and work again. So we had a really uh, terrific working relationship. I would say... 18 months of actual book writing. We did about six months prior to that. Uh, just some, it took me a while to convince Pete, you got to tell the truth about the gambling. Uh, he was still in denial for quite a while with that. Uh, and then at one point he decided to come clean. Well, I have not. um, When you speak about that here, Dr. Espy, who's a Georgia tech man, he was one time Georgia's humanitarian of the year. Uh, very few humanitarians in our country have done as many missions of medical mercy as Espy has. So when you get into what we refer to as the hero's journey in, in writing and directing, and whether you're doing uh, George Patton or Elvis Presley or Barack Obama or G.B. Espy or Jack Williams, we all have a journey of life that starts out from the childhood and the ambition and that call to adventure and then crossing that first, you know, that first threshold where you realize no matter what you go to do, you're going to have the gatekeepers telling you you can't do it. So we have structure in film and literature the same way you do in calculus or the law. And so, you know, I've been doing it for 30 years. So that part of it came natural to me. Uh, it'd be like a, a coach calling plays after a while. They're, they're all in your head. And it's just finding those elements of drama 
and and enthusiasm and passion uh, for each character that you're working with to to make sure that that just stands up on the page and and grabs the heart of the reader. Well, you captured this heart, and I want to highly recommend the, the book, The Apostle. I have not read the one on Pete Rose, but I can assure you it's uh, it's about to be read because uh, I was just thoroughly, uh, thoroughly enjoyed the, the book on Dr. Espy. Well, what do you got? Uh, you got any projects underway? What's coming up next for, for Rick Hill? Well, I'm on a little bit of a publicity tour. It's called uh, The Apostle, The Miraculous Journey of Dr. G.B. Espy, a doctor who defied borders. And that's now live on Amazon.com. And I'm just so thrilled, Jack. We're getting a lot of people, especially in the Atlanta and Georgia Tech community. Uh, the endorsements and the uh, reviews have just been off the charts positive, And we're we're really thrilled about that. Uh, I've got another book on leadership that I've been working on that I hope to finish soon. Um, over the years, like Jim Leland, who was my Little League baseball coach, he became a World Series championship coach. Uh, Jim and John Harbaugh were born in my hometown. Their dad, Jack, was one of our high school football coaches and got to know John Wooden out here. So I've been compiling a leadership book uh, that I hope to finish soon. Uh, also been working now with some of the people in Georgia uh, who were in Ty Cobb's inner circle. Some of the people who were very young then now that are a little bit older that, that remember his life. So we're working on a new book on Ty Cobb and uh, the Jim Eisenreich script uh we have in development as a movie. So trying to stay busy and uh, and get out and play a little golf from time to time. Say busy would be an understatement. That's that's quite a schedule and some some interesting opportunities coming up. I, I want to make sure you keep me posted on uh, on the Ty Cobb one as well. Jack, do you know you have a lot of kids with your leadership? Uh, I'm interested in that and, and because I speak to a lot of youth groups around the country, and I, I want to emphasize out there how important this is to reach America's youth. You know, when you and I grew up, we had no cell phones, no Internet, but we had each other. And we would get on our bicycles and ride to the park or the swimming quarry. And, and, and we had community and we had a sense of America and patriotism. And you didn't just have one mom or dad. You had 12 moms or dads in the, in the neighborhood. That's exactly right. And our kids are missing that today due to no fault of their own. They've got instant gratification at their fingertips here with, with the internet and cell phones. And unfortunately, we're in a very ugly political landscape where that billionaire donor class, they see these young kids as consumers rather than, you know, young men and women looking to uh, find their place in the world. And we have to do everything we can to reach these kids. You know, when I talk to them, I ask them, I say, who are you? Why are you here? What do you want from this gift called light? And how will you go about getting the desires of your heart? I am amazed at how baffled young kids are with such specific questions, which if you go back to our era, that's all we thought about, you know, right. and and we live in a Kardashian era, unfortunately, where, where things are just superfluous and meaningless. And um, it we have to do everything we can to right this ship because the forces of opposition are working against us. We, we did a film in so uh, socialist Bulgaria years ago. 
Everyone walked, uh, earned $40 a month. Didn't matter whether you were a doctor, a teacher, a cab driver, or a janitor. You earned $40 a month. Our cinematographer over there earned $40 a month, and he was brilliant. But everybody walked around like zombies. No soul, no hope, no ambition, no spirit, because nothing mattered. You, you, If you excelled at what you did, you still got the same $40 a month. But the politicians lived like kings. Yep. The politicians travel on pilot, uh, private jets. But the average person couldn't even afford to fill their gas tank if they did own a car. And this is the evil of socialism that's that's pervading our country. And, and we've got to let the young people know and do what we can to fight against those who are trying to push this socialist agenda for their own gain. It doesn't do the kids or, or any of the American people any good. It's just all for that 2% elite class to get richer and richer. And I don't think there's ever been a time in the world where uh, there was a bigger call to adventure for, for people to stand up for what this country means. Well, Rick, I couldn't. You, you summed it up perfectly on the issue with our youth. And you summed it up perfectly on the issue surrounding our, our country right now. So I, I would just add a, an amen. Well, Rick, uh, let me tell you, I wish we could keep going. In fact, we're going to get you back for another session. Uh, but listen, it was great uh, having the opportunity to reconnect uh, with you today. And I'm just glad that you were able to overcome your college coach and, and do some really amazing things. And you got some some more amazing things uh on your uh, radar right now. And I look forward to to uh, seeing how those turn out and, and buying some more books. So I, I really appreciate you being with us and, and sharing. You gave some great insights today. Jack, I thank you. And I appreciate uh, everything you do. Um, I, I was blessed to have you as a coach. And I know we make fun of that. But those those uh, Georgia Tech was a wonderful platform, a springboard um, you know, for all of us, regardless of your profession. And, uh, but again, Georgia Tech is brick and mortar. Uh, Georgia Tech is you and me and the people, all those great players and coaches and students, you know, going back to, to Callaway and McCamish and all, you know, all those mentors, Johnny Gresham and Taz Anderson and, uh, Bill Collins, the, the people, Pete Petit, the people that, um, you know, served as mentors to us to sort of show us that, listen, there's a whole world out here and this is what can be done if you apply yourself with a certain amount of ambition and honor, integrity and merit. Um, and that's what I hope for this next generation of kids. That's that's why I'm so concerned about it. We just don't see enough of the right thing. And I appreciate what you do. Well, we need the right kind of role models. There's no question about that. And you're certainly out there being one of those. Well, as we wrap up another Knowledge Cast episode, a special thanks to each of you for making us a part of your day. I hope that you'll join us again next week for another interesting guest as we had this week. Uh, and until then, make it your goal this week to be a positive influence in the lives of others.